Well, I want to welcome you. Uh, let's see, it's still morning for another 17 minutes to Alliance Bible Fellowship. Thanks for choosing to worship with us uh, today. Many of, you, many of you know that my father uh, passed away uh, just last year. He was 77 years old, and he had spent the last few years of his life battling dementia. In fact, about three or four years ago, mom thought it would be great to have some help caring for him, so they decided to, to try out, to, to move into an assisted living home down in Greenville, South Carolina, just a few miles from their home. Uh, again, just try it out, see how they liked it. My, my brother and I w- went down to help them move some of their stuff into their new room. It was unfurnished, and so that's right, we just took some stuff from the house, moved it, moved it over, but and then she called me after a couple of weeks and said, Scott, we just left. And I said, what do you mean? She said, we don't like it. We're going home. I said, well, wait, what? She said, no, we're in the car. We're going home. And I said, well, like, does anybody know? And she said, nope, we just left. And I said, well, what about your stuff? She said, well, you're going to have to come down so we can get it back. I said, so mom, let me get this straight. You just broke out of a nursing home? She said, yep. One of my sisters moved in to help my parents, for which I'm very thankful. And Well, Dad continued then to deteriorate. In fact, he spent the last year of his life in bed under hospice care. Well, this is how the hospice care began. I I was actually scheduled to go to... Uh, uh, to Beirut with, with Paul Dagger, uh, to be with his father, Sammy Dagger, and his retirement celebration there. But, but, but dad was in the hospital, and, and they sent him home and gave him two to four weeks to live, which was right in the middle. We were leaving in three weeks, right in the middle when Paul and I were supposed to leave. So I had to cancel my part of the trip. And dad made it for another year, and uh, another 14 months. In in fact, the the next year, which was last year, uh, Tana and I and our girls uh, scheduled a a mission trip again to the Middle East. I was to teach a two-week intensive uh, in Romans at at the Bible college there called Kate. And and Tana and the girls, uh, Dagger kids, were going to travel with Samaritan's Purse to Iraq and serve in a community center there. It was a a great three-week trip. And while we were there, Dad died. He's ornery like that. But, but know for sure, he would have wanted us to be in Beirut. You see, he was a committed follower of Christ, and he, and he loved missions. In fact, in the last few months of his life, things got worse and worse with his dementia. Uh, mornings were, were the worst time of the day uh, for his confusion. Uh, one day, we were down there visiting with him, and I, I, it was early in the morning I got up. I was sitting next to his bed. Mom came over and, and sat down, and, and Dad looked up and kind of looked around and said, hey, I'm glad we can have this meeting to share what God is doing in our churches through missions. Mom and I kind of looked around, and, uh, okay. So he says, so why don't each of us give a report? starting with you. And he pointed to my mom. <laughs> well, I've been going to the same church for years. That's all right. So she, she took a turn, and, and, and then I talked about some things that were going on here at, at Alliance, and then Dad took his turn and, and shared about being thankful for the, for the spread of the gospel. And, and then, then just without notice, he just started praying, thanking God for our missionaries and building his church around the world. Then he said, Amen. He looked up, 
said, I'm glad that we can have this meeting to share what God is doing in our churches through missions. We're going to all give a report, starting with you. And he pointed at mom again. <laughs> so she looked at me. I just nodded. So she gave a report. And so did I. And then dad did. And then he prayed and said, amen. And looked up and said, yeah, you got it. Four times. <laughs> we were kind of in this loop. But I was so thankful that in the midst of his confusion, all that was going on, he wanted to talk about the gospel's work around the world. I want you to know he would have wanted me to be in Beirut. Dad died. So mom is now a widow. He actually died on the evening before their 56th wedding anniversary. I said he was ornery. So, So what is my responsibility as a son toward my widow mother? Well, what's my responsibility? That's actually what we're talking about in our ongoing study of First Timothy. I, I share that because if this is your first Sunday here this morning, you're, you're visiting, we arrive at a passage that is a bit, well, it's kind of surprising. Paul wrote First Timothy to young Timothy about setting things in order in the church at, at Ephesus. He's, he's talked about uh, confronting false teachers, chapter 1, chapter 4, and, and chapter 6. He, he talked about the gathered assembly, about praying and, and worship. He talked about how women, men and women should conduct themselves in the gathered assembly. Then, then he told Timothy, this, hey, hey, this is what a good pastor, therefore this is what a good church looks like. I'm not going to review all of that, but he included things like a good church doesn't tolerate false teaching. It's committed rather to, 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 to reading and study and applying the Bible. It's, it's committed to serving one another with its spiritual gifts. And then that brought us to chapter 5 last week where Paul identifies three groups of people within the church family that need special attention, widows, elders, and, and slaves. He started at the, at the beginning of the chapter, again last week, where he reminds us that we're a family in those first couple of verses. Then, then in, in verses 3 to 16, for four, 14 verses, over half of chapter 5, Paul talks about the care of widows. That seems a bit excessive to me. I thought, are you kidding me? I'm going to talk about this again. And on Tuesday, we had a staff Meaning, and someone told me that in the middle service, last service, we were going to have a youth group from Alabama here, and they were here, like 50 of them right there. And I'm going to talk about widows. And I was reminded, we were reminded that God has always had a special place in His heart for orphans and widows and, and aliens or, or strangers. For, for those without parents and husbands and, and homes, for those who may be unable to take care of themselves. And, and so Paul does give a lot of instructions about caring for widows. I reminded us, in fact, that the, the, the motiva- this was the motivation for the, the appointment of the first deacons in, uh, in, a, in the church, right there in Jerusalem. The, the very reason, the very first reason that deacons exist is not to cause problems in the church, it's to take care of widows. So, having reminded us that we are a family, Paul tells us, take care of your widows. First paragraph um, uh, on on widows is in verses 
3 to 8, there, we, last week we saw some important things. Uh, first, care for widows who are widows indeed. We saw that, we can see, think of that as widows in need. Those who are left destitute, who are left alone, who, who don't have the resources or the family to take care of them. And that led to a second thing that we saw. That, that, listen, though, the biological family has the priority of caring uh, for their own widows. They, they have the responsibility of caring for their moms and their grandmas. And third, he said, he instructs the church, listen, you, you take care, though, of those godly widows who are, in fact, trusting God for their care. If they're left alone, they're trusting God, then you, you care for them. And that was an important principle. We, we, we learned that benevolence care is not necessarily a requirement for everyone. It should, in fact, be reserved for those who have real needs not just those who are trying to fleece the church. And it should be reserved for those who have some degree of spiritual interest. Again, not just people who are using the church. Well, well all of that then brings us to our text this morning. And all of that background, so you know where, what in the world we are reading, why we find ourselves here this morning. I mean, you'll get it. Look at it with me. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in reading verse 9, says this. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has um, shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. It makes sense. Well, okay, I'm kind of getting this. I'm flowing along. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they, they want to get married. That's bad, incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows, get married, bear children, keep house, and, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, that means widows in her family, she must assist them. And the church then must not be burdened so that, if, so that it may, the church may assist those who are widows in, indeed, or widows in need. Wow. Did anybody want to kind of come up here and take over for me? A challenging text. Adding said, families take care of your widows. He says, church, if you find yourself taking care of widows, there are, there are conditions, there are qualifications that need to be met. We're going to talk about it this morning. Following this outline, we're going to talk about care of older widows and then care of younger widows, actually the lack of care of younger widows, and then the care of dependent widows. First point there, it's kind of easy. Paul says, if a widow needs to be taken care of by the church, uh, that is, if she is a widow indeed or a widow in need, um, left alone without family or personal resources, then she must meet the following qualifications. First, uh, in verse 9, first qualification is, I'm going to call it maturity. It's a nice word. She's got to be at least 60 years of age. Because you see, at this time, 60, I'm, I'm just saying, okay, at this time, 60 was considered reaching old age, not suggesting, of course, that that would be the case today. It was then that you were considered old at 60, and it was also considered an age in which you were unlikely to remarry. So for whatever age that is for us today, we need to think about that. 
Second is fidelity, okay, fidelity, maturity, fidelity. In verse 9, she must have been the wife of one man. This is the exact phrase used of elders in chapter 3, only he switches the terms around. An elder, who remember, was to be a one-woman man, one-woman man that is not polygamous but faithfully committed to his wife. This widow was to be a one-man woman. Same words, only just moves them around. Some suggest this means that she was only to be married one time. That's it. That's all you got. In fact, um, it was uh, considered at this particular time, it was actually considered a virtue for a woman to only be married once. That is, for a widow not to remarry. So some say that's what he's talking about there. However, Paul's, given Paul's encouragement for young widows to remarry in verse 14, I don't think that's what he's talking about here, that you're only married once. You see, if he encouraged young widows to remarry, then if that's what he's talking about, then he's removing them from any future possibility of aid from the church. So likely, um, most agree this simply means, like the elder, the woman was to be faithfully committed to her husband. She was been faithful to her husband, however many she happened to outlive. Third, I won't talk about black widows. Okay. Uh, third is uh, charity. Uh, okay. Just uh, kind of maturity. Okay. Fidelity and charity. It works. This widow is to have a reputation for good works. She is to be a godly woman as evidenced by her works. And then he actually names a few of them. And this list is not meant to be ex- exhaustive, but rather illustrative. This is, this is what she's to look like. And he gives us four examples. First, if she gets on the list... The list of widows, if she has brought up children. If she had been, now I have a couple of thoughts about that. First, Paul does not indicate whether it was her children or uh, perhaps orphans. In this whole context, it seems to be talking about taking care of people that are unable to take care of themselves. So it could be orphans, some suggest. Second, most agree that, that, that Paul means if she had children, that she, that she brought them up well. If she had children, she brought them up well. For example, when we say that an elder must have his children under control, that's not mandating that an elder have children, but that if he has them, they're under control. Same idea here, that if she had children, she brought them up physically and spiritually well. That's required to be on the list of widows. Next, if you get on the list, she should be a woman of hospitality. We saw this was a qualification of of elders back in chapter 3. We also see this as an expectation of all Christians in Romans chapter 12. We we know that the word for hospitality speaks of having strangers into your home for the purpose of feeding and clothing them, taking care of physical needs. Kind of makes sense. Most likely, Paul is uh, speaking of traveling Christians. This woman was an example of of hospitality toward brothers and sisters in Christ. She would would take care of them as they made their way through. Again, it makes sense. If the church is to care for her physical needs, then she should have demonstrated a desire to do the same for other Christians as they came through town. Third, she, she goes on the list if she has washed the saints' feet. Saints, of course, we know refers to, to other Christians. And at this time, if, if you were welcoming someone into your home, you, or actually more likely a slave, would wash the feet of your guest. The, the roads, you see, were grimy and, and dusty. It was, 
this washing their feet was an act of hospitality. This is what you, this is what you did. It was a rather menial task, but then we remember that Jesus did this for His disciples at, at the Last Supper. He said He did it setting an example for us that we should wash one another's feet. Well, if they need it, okay, fine, but, but, but it, that was more of the cultural practice here. Today, the idea would be this widow has sought to serve brothers and sisters and in menial tasks. You had a wedding yesterday and just a lot of things leading up to that. And there were a group of ladies, a group of friends in this church that they were, they were just there. They were, they were setting up and they were tearing down and they were serving food and, 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 they, were, and they were washing dishes and, and they were washing the feet of the saints. Now, remember when Jesus did that, He left that as an example for for. all. For all of us, Paul is simply saying here, if the widow is to be cared for physically by the church, that she should have demonstrated a physical care for the church. Fourth, Paul says, she goes on the list, if she has assisted those, again, likely believers, in distress. She's assisted those in distress. This could be, this word is used to speak of, of persecution, this, this word distress, so it could be helping those who are being persecuted, or more likely the context, she's simply helping those who were in need like she's in need of food or clothing or being nursed to, back to health or something like that. The point is this widow demonstrated a Christian desire to help those who are in distress, and that sounds vaguely familiar, and we go, oh yeah, that's right, because James chapter 1 says that religion that God our Father really likes is taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, same, same word. See, this is, this is what this whole, this pattern begins to emerge, that this woman, this widow that is now going to turn to the help for physical care has already demonstrated physical care. Paul finishes with a summary statement of the widow's good works. If she has devoted herself, if she has devoted herself to every good work, she gets on the list. Just some examples. Uh, if she's been a godly woman, woman serving Christ by serving others, okay, whatever our list would, would look like. If she meets these qualifications, put her on the list. That is the list of widows. That is, put her on a list of those who are going to be physically, that is financially, supported by the church. Now, uh, some suggest that it's more than just receiving support, that it is also by being put on the list, she is available for service as well. It's a list of support and, and service. Uh, and also, verse 12, don't miss this. I'm just going to highlight this at this point. We'll come back to it. When you got put on the list of widows, it appears that you took a pledge to remain single. Okay? I need help. Church is going to help me. I am in turn going to help the church. And I take this pledge. I take a vow to remain single. So that's the idea here. All right, kind of makes sense. I get that, all of that. But then from there, Paul turns his focus to widows who should not be put on the list. Verses 11 to 15, things get a little more difficult because we find that those not to be put on the list are younger widows, and he gives two reasons for not putting them there. Look at them with me. First reason found in verses 11 and 12, refuse, don't do it, it's not going to happen, to put younger widows on the list for when they feel 
sensual desires and disregard of Christ. They want to get married, and then verse 12 suggests that they do, which is really bad because then they incur condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. And you thought verses 9 and 10 were challenging. This makes it look like a young widow who gets married and ends up being condemned for doing so. This is a problem. Now, there are actually two different interpretations of who these young widows here are. Some suggest, and I think this actually is, is a good one, that the, the, the challenge in Ephesus was this historical uh, context where some young ungodly widows were causing problems. They had somehow gotten on this list of, of widows and, were, and were, were being taken care of, and now, hey, with all of the free time, they were causing problems. And Paul goes on to use some rather strong language to describe them. They have sensual desires. They've disregarded Christ. They are engaged in some serious sin, you know, like being a busybody and gossiping. They're lazy. They're, 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 perhaps the words, wording there allows for spreading the heresy of false teachers. They've turned aside to follow Satan. In other words, it could be that these young women are those described at the beginning of chapter 4, had been taken in by the false teachers and had had fallen away from the faith, and now we're spreading destructive doctrines of demons. It's, that's, that's possible. But it's also possible that Paul is talking about young believing women who had simply found themselves widows in the church, and, 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 and they had fallen prey to some ungodly behaviors. They'd been put on the list, they had some free time, and, and, and they... And I, and, and now they were involved in these ungodly activities. So, so what does Paul w- want them to do? Now, before we look at that, you, you may remember, be familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is addressing this idea of widows and unmarried people. And, and he says this, but I say to the unmarried and to widows, so if you're single here this morning for whatever reason, you've never been married or, or you're widowed, that it, that, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. That means single. But, hey, if they have no self-control, let them marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And you think, are you kidding me? I could have gone all day without hearing this. Especially if you're sitting here this morning and you're single, you're unmarried. I mean, really? You're going to stand up there and tell me that it's good for a single person to remain as Paul, meaning it's better that I remain single? It's not my plan. But hey, then he kind of caves in a little and says, hey, if if you don't have self-control, go ahead and get married. That's kind of challenging. So married people, if you're sitting here and you're married this morning, you're only married because you lack self-control. You were really spiritual. Hey, if you were really spiritual, you'd be single. Let's not forget verse 7 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 7 comes before verses 8 and 9 says this, Yet I, Paul, wish that all men were even as I myself am that is single. However, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Only... He goes on, verse 17, as the Lord has assigned to each one this gift, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. 
So I direct in all of the churches. So Paul makes clear here that singleness is a gift, all right? But so is marriage. And each one has his own gift from God. And God has assigned that gift, particular gift, to each person. And as He has called that person, so should you do. In fact, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7 carefully, Paul says, being single is good. You see, because you can be fully devoted to the Lord without distraction. But, but, but listen to me, it takes a special gift from God to remain single, like Paul had. And he saw value in that. But, but, but please remember, and I made reference to this, if we were all single, that is, none of us got married, we would eventually cease to exist. You see, largely, God expects people, even believers, to get married and have children. That's a good thing. That's the way that God created us. Marriage is good. Having children is good. But if God has called you to singleness for His own special purposes, then like, like He did Paul, then that's good. Paul actually says that's better. Okay? That's what, that's what he says is better. So here in 1 Timothy, how do, we, how do we put that together? In 1 Timothy, Paul is not contradicting what he wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians. He's simply recognizing that most people don't have the gift of singleness. Obviously, these, these widows didn't or don't have the gift, or at least they didn't have the gift. They got married the first time. And so Paul assumes they got married rightly the first time. And so they should therefore, since they don't have the gift of singleness, got married they should get married again. You see, again, to be put on the list, it appears as if you had to make a promise of remaining single. You took a pledge. And if you didn't have this gift of singleness, what in the world are you taking a pledge for except that you want financial support? That's a problem. Paul says, after taking the pledge to serve the church, receive support, you have this desire, Paul, he even actually calls it a sensual desire. I think that's referring to the, the, the physical intimacy in marriage. You, you had this desire to get married. You do. You break the pledge, a pledge that is apparently made to Christ because in disregard to Christ, in disregard to the promise you made to Christ, you get married. And this is what Paul, I think, is referring to here. This condemnation then is not eternal condemnation. It's not like these widows, hey, got married and lost their salvation. No, but having taken the pledge, if they got married, they would be sinning. Actually, that highlights the importance of a pledge. It highlights the importance of a vow that we make to the Lord. You make a vow... You better keep it. To not do so is to break a promise to Him. You are then condemned in your sinful choice. In other words, listen to me. We should be very careful about making promises to the Lord that we do not intend to keep. Now, I know it's very popular in youth groups and, 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 and across our country today, middle school, youth, high school, youth groups. I know it's a very, very popular thing right now to encourage children. Uh, I said children. Youth. Um, your children. It is very, uh, uh, um, it's very popular to encourage you to take a vow to make a commitment of celibacy, of purity, of chastity until you get married. Now, I happen to think that's a very good thing. I, th I think that's great. 
And, and if you did that, I think that's really, really wonderful. But now listen to me. You better keep the pledge. You, you better do it because if you break it, you're sinning twice. You're sinning in sex before marriage, and you're sinning in breaking a promise you made to the Lord. You better keep it. Second reason not to put younger widows on the list is found in verses 13 to 15. This is the toughest part yet. If you put them on the list, that is, you support them so that they now have lots of free time. they got no husband, got no children. As a general rule, meaning this would not necessarily be the case all of the time, but as a general rule, they will then, having all the free time in the world, no responsibility, they will learn to be idle, which means lazy and unproductive. While that old saying, idleness is the devil's workshop, is not technically found in the Bible, it is, however, true. It is found in the truth of this text. To be idle is to be inactive. It's to have nothing productive to do. We need to intentionally fill our time with productive things to do. We need to, with these young widows, they, they had empty space to fill. And as we often do, it's filled with godless or ungodly activities. It is called spiritual entropy. You just, it just deteriorates. You want me to prove that's true? You get done with homework, you get done with the responsibilities that you have, and you sit down in front of the computer because you got, hey, time, nothing intentional to do, and I'll just start surfing the web. Spiritual deterioration. So these young widows would go from house to house, could be houses of believers, could be the house churches. Remember, they didn't have church buildings at this time. Nothing better to do, they would go from house to house, and they wouldn't just be idle, again, lazy, with, with nothing productive to do. They would, go, they, would, they would go further into sinful activity. For them, this sinful activity was becoming gossips and busybodies. To be a gossip is to share things that should not be shared. You've heard something really especially juicy, and you can't wait to share it with someone. To be a busybody is to be involved in other people's business that you should not be involved in. It could, the idea could be the opposite of gossip. You're looking for some gossip to hear. So they're free. They got all this free time, and rather than being constructive, they were destructive. They would say things that should not be mentioned. Again, either gossip or busybody stuff or Perhaps even the word allows for the nonsense, the silliness of the false teachers. Now, you may be sitting there about now thinking, are you kidding me? How would this play at ASU? I mean, this is kind of sexist. I mean, why is he singling out young widows, women, suggesting that they would become gossips and busybodies? That's a stereotype. I am highly offended by this. Listen to me. Very simply, Paul is assuming that young men, widowers or not, would be working, that they're busy. There was no list for widowers, right? They were, they were staying busy in their responsibilities. But, but widows who, who may not be able to care for themselves, who don't have the resources, um, should be taken care of. They have no means to care for themselves because if they don't, then obviously they'll be destitute. But he's suggesting if you take care of young widows and give them nothing to do, spiritual entropy sets in and they will become 
godless. They will become ungodly. I want you to understand something. The same would be true of men. This is not, has nothing to do with gender. This has everything to do with people who have nothing to do. You give a man nothing to do, we'd be a whole lot worse than you. It's the truth, and you know it. So Paul says if they're young, the best way for them to be taken care of, verse 14, get married. That's what he says. They likely don't have the gift of singleness since they were married once before. Paul is simply trying to combat this idleness that would lead to sinful activities of gossip and being a busybody. Again, gender doesn't matter. All of us left to ourselves, idleness, this is where we would go. Best way for young widows to fight that is to get married and then do what young married women do. They should have children and they should keep house. Again, I know that sounds stereotypically sexist. This is not... Please listen to me. This is not a blanket statement that a woman's place is in the home. She should be barefoot and pregnant. No, I, 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 I never say that a woman's place is in the home. I do, however, say that a woman's priority is in the home. If she works outside the home, I have no problem with that. That is fine. But she still has the responsibility to bear children. She's get married, bear children. She is responsible to do that. You want to know why? Because men can't. This is a purpose for marriage and physical intimacy. It's procreation. And here Paul says a wife should get married and, and bear children. And any of you ladies who have had children know, right? Check your heads at me. Know that you are, stay then rather busy. That's the point. She keep herself busy with rearing children and keeping the home. What he said, keep the home. And it's an interesting word. It's used only here in all of the New Testament. It speaks of being the master of the household. That's the definition, being the master of the household. It speaks of directing the affairs of the house. Paul actually expects the wife to take the primary role in directing the affairs of her house. I've heard it said this way, that she is the mistress of the domain, and she is, and all of us who are married know that is right. But it keeps her busy. Titus chapter 2 says it this way, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossip, not enslaved to much wine. Little, I guess, is fine. Teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure workers at home. NIV has it, busy at home. That's a terrible translation. Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. I'm going to draw your phrase again to that, workers at home, literal translation. So again, even if you choose to work outside the home, career, all that, I have no problem with that. The one young wife here is to be busy working at home. Paul is suggesting that by doing so, these young widows, nothing to do, no children, no husbands, trouble. Suggesting here, this will keep them out of trouble. It will keep them godly. This is a good pursuit. This is a spiritual issue. By being busy, bearing children, working at home, doing the things expected of young married women, they will give no, the enemy no occasion for reproach. He's saying, don't let the enemy of your soul, he names him in the next verse as Satan. Don't let him have an occasion to reproach you, to revile you, to accuse you. He says, in fact... Some have already turned aside following Satan and his devices. Again, lots of discussion about that. It could be those they talked about at the beginning of chapter 4 who have turned aside from the faith and were following the false teachers. could be that. 
It could, however, simply speak of the sinning that these young widows were doing. Any time that you turn away to sin, you are following Satan. All sin follows the father of lies. He is the one who entices us to sin and rebel against our Savior. This brings us quickly, very quickly to the last verse where Paul says again, it is the biological, he just reminds us, sums it all up, it's the biological family's first responsibility to take care of any widows they may have. He even says, if you are a woman, identify whether or not you're a widow, if you are a woman and you have means to care for dependent widows in your family, that is, women who are unable to take care of themselves, you need to do that so that the widows would not be a financial burden to the church. Okay, so, there we go. There you have it. It brings me to some final thoughts, some questions that I raised last week. And as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, why in the world did you raise these questions? Uh, But I did. So let me just close this long passage on widows by asking and answer the question, how does this apply today? I have three thoughts, three thoughts that I want to share with you. And even as we begin, I want you to understand that some of these are just my opinion. They're just my opinion, hopefully born out of a faithful walk with Christ and the dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. First, let's address this issue of functional widows. That's what I called them last week. These are women whose husbands have not died but they have abandoned their wives. They have deserted them. Uh, what about husband, uh, wives who have husbands whose, uh, whose husbands are no longer physically able to care for them? I would suggest that having met the requirements that we should seek to apply this text. Biological families have the primary responsibility to care for such women, but inasmuch as families cannot or refuse to do so, we should look for opportunities to care for older women whose husbands have deserted them or who are unable to care for them. Second, what about, what about nursing homes? Okay, is it okay for me to put mom or maybe mom and dad in a nursing home only if they can break out? Sticky, sticky question. You see, I would suggest, again, my opinion, I would suggest that caring for a parent goes beyond writing a check. So if the idea is to write a check so that you can pay someone else to meet your responsibility, I would question the spiritual wisdom of that practice. However, I also recognize that many times assisted living is in some way best for the parent. They can receive the medical care that they need. They can receive more focused attention than we're able to give. And so if the decision is made for the parent's best interest, then by all means make the right decision. But again, let me qualify. I am not sure just writing a check to meet the demands of this passage um, is, is what Paul means by making some return to parents in verse 4, which leads to the final thing that I will say. Providing financially for our parents is certainly the intent of this passage. I acknowledge that. We should seek to do that. And if biological families do not, if they cannot or they refuse to do so, it is our responsibility as a church family to take care of our church widows. It's right in the Bible. I want you to know that we seek to do that. Often through our benevolence fund, we seek to wisely administer that fund. 
But I also know in the culture or society in which we live that there are things like IRAs and 401ks and Social Security that, 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 that largely take care physically, financially of our parents. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. However, just because our parents um, are being provided for in that way does not mean that we are caring for them. And I would also add, just as parents provided for us beyond Cheerios and blue box macaroni and cheese and clothes on our back and a roof over our heads, and as much as they provided, our parents provided relational, emotional, spiritual, academic care, we should seek, I am applying this text this way, we should seek to do the same for them. This is a way, even if financial needs are met, that we can honor our parents and obey the fifth commandment, that we can care for family widows, and that we can care for church widows. Can I suggest it's a little bit more than writing a check to the benevolence fund? We need to care for them. I know you perhaps have more questions. I can always give you more opinions. I never run out of opinions. In the end, they are just that. Hopefully, however, that we together as a church family can have discussions in life groups and have discussions among ourselves. What does it look like for us to apply this text and care for those among us who are unable to care for themselves? And even if they are physically cared for, what would it look like for us as a church family to care for our widows? Let's stand for prayer. Father, I, I recognize even as I was preparing this this week, I was thinking um, there would be a lot of people sitting in this room today who think, well, this, does, oh, this doesn't apply to me, and yet it does because we are a family. We have dependent widows, and even in biological families, most of us don't have to look too far to find dependent widows. And so would you help us to recognize the biblical Christian responsibility of taking care of them? proving the reality of our faith. Paul said if we don't, we're worse than unbelievers. Help us to, to think this through in a way that is honoring to you, that hears and applies the Word of God. We pray in Christ's name.